This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the first week of the legislative session wraps up today. That's one week down, eight more to go. Criminal justice reform is on the agenda in the Senate Appropriations Committee, where they've approved a bill to give first-time drug offenders a break from minimum mandatory sentences. Senate leaders push ahead with their new gun safety legislation, much to the dismay of the NRA. Gun lobbyist Marion Hammer calls it gun control on steroids. A bill banning the import, export, and sale of shark fins clears its second committee in the Florida House. Our guest today on our Sunrise interview is Bud Childs. The son of the late Governor Lawton Childs is heading up a new campaign to encourage you to buy American-grown produce. We'll also have your calendar of events and our regular tribute to Florida Man, which in this case is the story of two girls gone wild at two different airports in the Sunshine State. And now, the top stories on Sunrise for Friday, January 17th. A bill relaxing some drug-related mandatory minimum sentences clears its final committee in the state Senate and is ready for the floor. Senator Rob Bradley's bill would increase judicial discretion in sentencing of nonviolent offenders, and under his proposal, anyone convicted for the first time of buying or possessing less than two grams of any narcotic, except fentanyl, would not have to serve more than a year in jail. House leaders do not appear to share Bradley's enthusiasm for criminal justice reform, but he is not discouraged. Well, everything in this process is a give and take. I don't know where we end up on this issue or any other uh, uh, issue uh, of policy uh, where we have discussions between the, the House and the Senate. You know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, we've, we've made significant progress over the years. I remember when I, when I started um, eight years ago uh, in the Senate, uh, even talking about these issues, uh, it was like a third rail. Uh, and, and you look at the significant progress we've made. I, I passed a Department of Juvenile Justice bill that uh, focused on prevention uh, for the department versus the end services after um, you know, things have already gone wrong. And we've, we've moved those, the focus of the department and the resources to prevention and out of uh, you know, just housing, warehousing kids after things have gone uh, all wrong. And uh, think of all the uh, improvements that we've made in uh, specialty courts, drug courts, veterans courts. All of these things have happened uh, because we just keep moving the ball forward. And this is very natural to have, um, you know, tension back and forth. You heard today uh, some folks that, are, you know, don't always get comfortable with uh, moving the ball too far. Uh, you know, sometimes House proposes things and we don't, we think they're going too far and, and kind of bevel the edges and, and uh, take that down a little bit. Uh, take it down a notch a little bit uh, from what they're trying to do. That's that's healthy democracy, uh, representative democracy, and I uh, look forward to having that discussion on this issue today. This bill will not do anything to reduce the sentences of people already convicted under minimum mandatory drug laws. He may support the idea in concept, but Bradley says it's a balancing act, and a retroactivity clause would undermine his bill. There are individuals sitting in prison today who would not be um, getting that same sentence um, if some of the reforms we have done in past were in place when, the, when they were sentenced. And I'm always open to talking about retroactivity. That's not a part of this bill. Um, I'm, I'm looking to thread a needle um, with a lot of different folks who have a lot of different opinions in the Senate. You know, the narrative often gets that, you know, it's that, you know, the Senate is in one, one place and the House is in a different place. I have 39 Somali warlords that I have to negotiate with in the Senate to get to, to get these things passed. And they don't always agree with what, what I'm trying to do, all right? 
So I have to uh, be concerned about getting my bill passed out of committees first before I even worry about uh, in the Senate, before I even worry about what happens in the House. So, uh, you know, this product that you saw today is the result of me working with my colleagues and them expressing a lot of their concerns and, and coming up with something that I think is palatable for um, the vast majority of them. Bradley says his bill could save the state $50 million per year and reduce the prison population by almost 5,000. Republican leaders in the Florida Senate have unveiled their plan to try to reduce gun violence in the Sunshine State. Senator Tom Lee is the sponsor of SB 7028 that combines several different provisions designed to keep firearms out of the wrong hands. You know, we're trying as best we can to thread a needle here and, uh, and, and do our job. And so we do several things in this, in this bill. The first is that under the red flag law, we're going to require that um, emergency practitioners, healthcare practitioners, uh, medical technicians, paramedics, uh, folks of that nature, uh, disclose uh, information to uh, the law enforcement if they have reason to believe, based upon the work they're doing with a particular patient, that uh, this individual is a serious threat to themselves or to other people. The, uh, the bill also creates a documentation process for the sale of a firearm when the seller is not a federally licensed firearm licensee and uh, chooses not to use a federally licensed uh, firearm uh, dealer to, uh, to complete the transaction. It is not a perfect system, but I think it is our best effort at this point to try to identify a way in which uh, we can create a burden on the seller of a weapon here in our state to do their due diligence to try to get to the bottom of whether or not somebody can lawfully possess a weapon, own a weapon in this state before they transfer that weapon to the individual. We also avail ourselves of a provision in the Florida Constitution that uh, gives counties the discretion to prohibit the sale of firearms in public places so that the sale of these firearms in public places could not occur unless they were being done through a federally licensed uh, firearm dealer uh, on premises. Uh, we also revised the current requirements relating to the safe storage of firearms. And it also expands the concept to include uh, individuals with an unsound mind. I know that is a vague term. Uh, we're trying to capture what we know when we see it. But we want to make sure that if you know you have somebody in the home that's under 18 years of age and has some a mental instability of some sort, that you understand that you have a burden to keep these weapons secure. Gun control advocates like the bill, but only as a starting point. Beth Dumond with the group Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense says it really doesn't go far enough. Moms Demand Action campaigns for new and stronger solutions to lax gun laws and loopholes that jeopardize the safety of our families and communities. We don't think that this ever has to be in conflict with safe, responsible gun ownership. So we are encouraged and thank you to see Senate Bill 7028 introduced and to support it as a positive first step toward ensuring background checks on all gun sales here in Florida. More background checks on gun sales are always a good thing. However, while we're encouraged by this move, we can't overlook the fact that the gun market has changed. Gun shows are not the only place where guns are sold, and it's not the only place where someone who is prohibited from possessing firearms can easily buy a gun without a background check. 
We do hope that the next step will be for lawmakers to completely close the loophole that allows people with dangerous histories to buy a gun without a background check and instead require them on all gun sales. Since the introduction of the federal background check system 25 years ago, the internet has emerged as a massive unregulated marketplace. An investigation found that in 2018, there were over 93,000 posts advertising guns for sale in Florida by unlicensed sellers where no background check was required. The investigation also found that prohibited people seek guns from unlicensed sellers at a rate nearly 10 times higher than from sellers where background checks are required, further highlighting the importance of completely closing this loophole. This is an issue that is popular across the state. 91% of Florida voters, including 86% of, of Republicans and 87% of gun-owning households, support background checks on all gun sales. But NRA lobbyist Marion Hammer says the Senate bill goes way too far. She describes it as a draconian trap that will snare law-abiding gun owners in red tape. Sections 3 and 4, with all due respect, contain the worst universal background check language I have ever seen. It appears to be an actual attempt to ban private sales through red tape and fear. Right now, today, it is a 10-year federal felony for any person to sell a firearm to another person who is prohibited from purchasing a firearm. That law is not being enforced. But this bill goes far beyond giving the state the ability to enforce those laws. It actually contains so much red tape that there is almost no way a law-abiding citizen could comply. The only thing we know for sure about this bill is that it will stop law-abiding people from exercising a constitutional right, and it will be completely ignored by criminals. In addition, the bill uses the term of unsound mind and makes it illegal to sell a gun to a person of unsound mind. Now, unsound mind is not a psychiatric term, it's a legal term, yet it is not defined in this bill. It is not defined anywhere in Florida statutes. It's a deliberate trap for law-abiding people. I researched it and found that unsound mind is a term that denotes lunacy or insanity. In Webster's online dictionary, it gives an example in a sentence, and it says, quote, she claims that her father was of unsound mind when he changed his will. That sounds more like an opinion or sour grapes to me. When's the last time you heard somebody say that a friend was a lunatic or insane for disagreeing with them, or that somebody was a lunatic or insane for filing a particular bill. It's a term that's a trap for law-abiding people. 
If anyone votes in favor of this bill, it's like a doctor giving a patient an antibiotic for a virus. The doctor knows it won't cure the illness, but at least he can make people think he's doing something. And in my opinion, supporting a bill so you can say you're doing something is political eyewash. So if political eyewash is your cup of tea, this bill has a whole pot full of it in it. This bill is nothing less than gun control on steroids. Make no mistake, a vote for this bill is a vote for massive gun control. The Senate gun safety bill has been approved by the Committee on Infrastructure and Security, but it has a long way to go and faces a very uncertain future. It might best be described now as a work in progress. A bill to ban the sale, import, and export of shark fins has cleared its second committee in the Florida House. The bill is sponsored by Representative Kristen Jacobs of Coconut Creek. Shark finning is the process of catching a a shark in the ocean, cutting off its fins, and allowing it to drop to the ocean and drown, keeping only those fins and selling them. Um, They are then dried. uh, As you know, that there's not much meat on a fin. It's basically cartilages. The fins are dried out, ground down into a powder, and then they are sold as an ingredient to shark fin soup. This is a terrible practice, and in 2012, the state of Florida agreed that it was a terrible process and banned it from Florida waters, which was in short followed suit by the federal government banning shark finning in federal waters. But there was a loophole in our law, and that said, well, and it may not make sense to you, but while it's illegal to cut the fins off of sharks, it's not illegal to sell them, to ship them, um, import them, or export them into the state of Florida. So there are some conditions with that law that allowed those who want to fin sharks to be able to do so if they follow state law. And state law says right now that you can catch two sharks per day per ship, no matter how many fishermen or fisherwomen are on board. And you may sell the fins as long as you land the whole body that brings the entire shark to shore. Then you may slice off the fins and sell them separately from the rest of the shark. The states of Hawaii first, and then followed by California, Texas, and New Jersey have banned the sale or import or export of shark fins in their state, which is wonderful news, except that the unintended consequences is has led to the state of Florida ports being the largest importer and exporter of shark fins in the country. And this is particularly a problem in uh, Miami's port, where hundreds and thousands of pounds are moving in and out. Unfortunately, the loopholes and all the different ways in which Uh, folks can get around the laws mean that there are lots and lots of shark fins and sharks with those fins being ill-gotten and illegally collected, and they're all moving through the state of Florida. There are only 22 commercial shark fishing operations left in Florida, but Lori Lee Thompson says they still matter. She's the owner of the Dixie Crossroad Seafood Restaurant in Titusville. Thompson says banning the sale of shark fins will be one more nail in the coffin of Florida's once thriving seafood industry. In the 37 years that we've been in business, We've watched Florida's commercial fishing industry wither and die as it succumbed to outside pressures. Degradation of the environment tops the list of negative forces joined by restrictive regulations, the rising cost of insurance and supplies, and the astronomical value of waterfront real estate. It's easier to give up and sell a fish house to a developer than it is to fight and stay in business. 
Commercial fishers and fish houses are not the only collateral damage from these forces. Supporting businesses, too, are impacted, including bait peddlers, truckers, fuel sellers, insurance companies, restaurants and retail markets, laundromats, people that rent apartments to the fishing crews, Wisconsin. all the way down to the non-boating consumers who want their shark kebabs when they visit the Sunshine State. Sharks are not on my menu, but the shark fishing industry is an important piece of a collection of fisheries that enable fish houses and their fishermen to have a year-round income. Passing HB 401 will kick another leg out from under the wobbly stool that supports the remnants of Florida's once robust commercial fishing industry. But Steve Roden with the Guy Harvey Foundation says finning is a dirty business and Florida should have nothing to do with it. Florida's kind of got a choice right now. We can either say, look, we're very smug, we got a sustainable fishery, we're doing a good job, there's only 22 fishermen, and it sort of doesn't matter. Let's, let's let them harvest that $340,000 worth of income. That's one position. The other could be there's 75 million sharks a year being killed for the shark fin trade. 75 million. It's unsustainable. And the middle class in China is growing rapidly, so the demand is not going down, it's going up. And this isn't harvesting sharks for Florida citizens to feed starving children. We're harvesting sharks for the wealthiest of the Chinese. We're giving them an ability to serve soup as an honor, and that soup is based on not only our sharks, but sharks all over the Caribbean, all over the mid-Atlantic. It is a global crisis, it's wrong to participate in the fin trade. We should have no part of the sleazy underbelly of the fishing community. Jacob's bill has been approved by two committees, one more to go before it's ready for the House floor. Next up, an interview with a blueberry farmer from Tallahassee by the name of Childs. This is Sunrise from Florida Politics. The Florida Hospital Association is inviting healthcare leaders from around the state for Hospital Day in the Legislature in Tallahassee on February 3rd and 4th. The summit will include a briefing in the chamber of the Florida House of Representatives, as well as provide meeting opportunities with key legislators. Members may register online at the Florida Hospital Association site at FHA.org. Again, please register at FHA.org. Welcome back to Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg, and our guest in the studio today is Bud Childs. Now, you may recognize that name. His dad was the Hikun former Governor Lawton Childs, and I have to tell you about my favorite governor to cover of all time. Thank you, Rick. So uh, you, you are an honored legacy here in the Sunrise that. interview. We appreciate you having here. But you're not here to talk about politics. You're here to talk about farms, the American Grown Movement. Tell me what this is all about. You know, uh, the American Grown Movement is uh, uh, it's a, it's, it really is a movement. That's a good name for it. But it, it's an effort to engage consumers and community groups and, and really a flat-out crisis that's going on with America's family farms. And I've experienced it firsthand as a blueberry grower in the last several years. Um, and um, what's happened is through unfair trade practices, uh, principally uh, produce coming across our borders from countries like Mexico and Colombia and Peru and Argentina and Chile, um, that's grown at you know, under a dollar an hour in labor, you know, pretty horrible labor conditions down there, environmental conditions, uh, food safety standards that we don't have to meet. So um, American farmers, as long as this is allowed to happen where uh, corporations can control 
uh, an outsourced food product to, from the United States, from our growers, to, uh, to use these third world growers, make more money. Um, th- they're putting farmers out of business. So we've lost 100,000 farms in the United States in the last five years. Thousands of farms in Florida and Georgia are under foreclosure uh, or becoming foreclosed. Um, and so it's, it's essential really for consumers to understand that uh, when they make a choice in the grocery store, uh, if they're not sure, and it's, it's easy to be unsure about where a product's from because there's a lot of deceptive labeling that goes on. A package looks like it's packed in California or packed in Florida, but it's actually been transported across the border and packed here, but it's a, but it's a foreign product. Um, so um, to ask the, the produce manager, is this an American – is this a local farm? Is this an American product? Because I want, a, I want American food because I don't want to see our local farms you know, go out of business as a result of somebody's you know, greed at the corporate level. Is that what we're getting to? I mean, the American farmer is such an icon. It's, it's such a symbol of our country. But nowadays, virtually all the food we get does not come from the family farmer. That's that's true, unfortunately. Um, for example, in, in our business, in the blueberry business, two or three years ago, there was only a, a few million pounds of blueberries coming across the border from Mexico. Uh Last year, Mexico sent almost twice as much as we grow in the state of Florida, 50 million pounds across the border. And again, this is a result of uh, companies that are in, have invested heavily the, down there because they can they can grow it cheaper and they can bring it with less restrictions and regulations. And, they, and the retailers can make more money as well. So the, the marketer and the retailer are making the money. The losers are the consumer because they're not getting a, a local American product. And the, the local farmer who can't possibly compete with this dynamic. Our government's part of the problem as well because the USMCA has no protections uh, against this dumping, this flooding of fruit or produce that's coming across the border. So if you're a tomato guy or you're a cantaloupe guy or you're a cabbage guy or a fruit guy, you're looking down the ab- – you're looking into the abyss – I mean, it's heartbreaking to talk to third and fourth generation farmers that are telling their sons or their grandsons, you know, there's no way to make it. You can't make it. And uh, let's let's think about Rick what that means. Um, what that means to uh, to our national security for us to be outsourcing our food supply. Uh, we really want to be dependent on a country like Colombia or Peru or Mexico for our food security. That's unthinkable. Uh, we think about what it means for our rural community that's struggling already uh, with low resources. The farm, the American farm, is really the backbone of the rural economy. I mean, that's the guy that, and, the, and the woman that's buying tractors and fertilizer and supplies and hiring truckers and packing houses, and that whole economy goes away when the when our, when the farm forecloses. And there's really nothing left in a lot of rural areas without that farm community. What would hold it together? There is there is there is nothing to to hold it together. Um, so it, I mean, it, it's an issue. Uh, it's a, it's an issue that consumers and and, and co- leaders in the community really need to rally around, and and understand that this vital resource that has been kind of the backbone of America for the last two hundred years, the foundation of America and the and the expansion of this country was farmers, you know, taking risk and making challenges, and 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 that's what. Really, the, the farmers are doing. They're taking all the risk. They're invest, investing this money to grow the, the food that we've got to have. 
and somebody else is on their back making all the profits and and squeezing that farmer into foreclosure. And that's a sad thing. And I I think that that Americans won't stand for it. I think that they've always rallied to support, uh, you know, American. uh, And I think they'll rally around this issue. I'm seeing, you know, just in the week since we've launched our website, um, uh, American Demand American Grown, we've had hundreds of people from around the, the country contact us from Texas and Tennessee and California and Michigan, um, all like, you know, what do we do? How do we how do we help? And yet the politicians out of Washington and the Trump administration, they're all talking about how great this new trade deal is between Mexico, the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, the, um, it's great for certain people, right? Yeah, I mean, like I say, it works really well. The status quo, it maintains the status quo, which is foreclosing our farms. So it, it works really well for the marketers and for the retailers primarily. And some of the, the large farms that also own uh, large farms in, uh, in, in the third world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, again, I don't see any other beneficiaries other than, than those people for this, for, for this system that, that we've allowed to, the government through its lack of enforcement of antitrust measures has allowed just a handful of companies uh, five or six major companies to control about 80 to 90 percent of the food supply in this country. And so the idea that we have to get back to is that a farmer grows and a farmer markets, he, and he becomes a principal and not a factor, that there's not somebody farming him for profits, which is what's happening now. Because it's just too much risk in this business, uh, too much um, hard work, too much uh, investment that has to be made. Uh, for, you know, to allow someone else to come in and, and reap all the rewards. Uh, and, and I think, again, that's a fairness issue that Americans will, you know, respond to. So what does the average American do in the meantime? I mean, there, there are only so many farmers markets we can visit. I, the, the main thing is, you know, go to, the, go to uh, Demand American Grown, like the Facebook page, uh, go into your grocery store and, and take a look at what's on the shelf. If you see foreign or you think it might be foreign, ask the produce manager and take a picture and go go back go back and uh, this is a group of people in Georgia are doing this. They're going into grocery stores and and taking pictures and rewarding the store, you know, on the internet for uh, having local farms food uh, and sort of calling them out, you know, if they're if they're putting you know foreign food on the shelf primarily in in a local seasonal market, and I, and that's something that that uh, consumers can do. Um, be, uh, you know, engage your, your friends and your contacts. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. There's a lot of people out there that really care about what their food is and where it comes from. And, uh, and I think a lot of them are confused because they, they do go into gro- grocery stores and they're looking for American and the, and the labeling is deceptive. And that's something that our Agriculture Commissioner, Nikki Fried, is concerned about. We're talking about uh, clear country of origin labeling so that if something's from Mexico or Peru, it needs to be clear on the label that that's where it's from. The good stuff, the local stuff, is still going to cost you more. You know, it's, that's just a fallacy. No, really? it doesn't. Because the grocery store is not charging less for a Mexican or Peruvian or Colombian product. They're paying. They're, you're paying a high price for that, but it's it's costing them a lower price. So there's you know that that's been said and 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 repeated by some of the marketers that you know we're we're giving consumers choice and we're bringing uh, you know we're lowering the price. That's nonsense. 
you can't find a, a store that says, well, you know, here's a Mexican product, so it's lower, and, and here's an American product, and so it's higher priced. I, I defy anyone to, to see anything like that. That, that doesn't happen. Uh, what happens is the money that uh, is not being saved by the consumer, it's being made by the, by the marketers and retailers. So I guess overall, is there a future in America for the farm, the family farm? I, I absolutely think so. I, I, I think really, again, that Americans are, when they're educated about this, that, and, and I think the job is, you know, one of education awareness. Uh, and, you know, we've got this incredible tool out there now that through social media, uh, you know, 20 years ago when I was doing this business and, you know, uh, we were working in this town. We didn't have this uh, ability to, you know, have this mouthpiece where, where people can can come around and 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 a cause, you know, and this is a cause that I think that people really will will get behind. Okay, and that's the American Grown campaign. How do they get a hold of you? Um, the demandamericangrown dot uh, org is the website. Uh, Demand American Grown on Facebook. Uh, and uh, when they go on the website, they'll find an 800 number they can call and they can post uh, their messages. And we, we pick up all those messages and, uh, and circulate them. Great to have you up here. Bye. Hey, great Bye. to be with you, Rick. Thanks for the opportunity. Your calendar of events today includes the House Agriculture and Natural Resources Appropriations Subcommittee, the House Government Operations and Technology Appropriations Subcommittee, and the House Healthcare Appropriations Subcommittee, not to mention the House Justice Appropriations Subcommittee. They're all meeting at 8.30. Not together, they're separate, don't worry. The House Higher Education Appropriations Subcommittee, the House Pre-K through 12 Appropriations Subcommittee, and the House Transportation and Tourism Appropriations Subcommittee are all meeting at 11.00. The Florida Board of Respiratory Care meets at 8.30, and the Florida Board of Optometry meets at 9, both events taking place at the Hilton Garden Inn at SeaWorld Orlando. Trustees from the University of Central Florida Board will be meeting at 9 o'clock at the UCF campus. And it's time once again for the Misadventures of Florida Man, featuring Girls Gone Wild at International Airports. A 15-year-old Florida girl who has autism told police she used a drink coupon she found on the floor at Orlando International Airport to pass through the TSA security checkpoint. She was later found near a Southwest Airlines gate. Officials with TSA disputed her claim. They say the girl had a valid boarding pass and they did not check her ID because she's under 18. It's a touchy subject for the TSA because a woman managed to get through security and board a Delta flight back in October without a ticket. And a Florida woman is captured on video at Miami International Airport wearing either a two-piece bathing suit or a bra and underwear while doing a strip tease. On the video posted by filmmaker Billy Corbin, you'll see her walking along singing a tune when she drops her top and strips off her undies without even breaking stride. The naked woman, who was later seen jumping on top of a patrol car at the airport, was taken into custody for an involuntary mental health evaluation. That's it for your Friday edition of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again on Monday as we plumb the inky depths of Florida politics.